Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes, explicit language and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. was a typically warm midsummer afternoon in 1966. However, shortly after 3pm, the sound of gunshots rang out on a residential street in Shepherd's Bush, West London. One of the guys got out of the car, come along and went bang, bang, bang. But I don't think he should be allowed in anywhere near the public. The judge at the time said that this was a heinous act. There was a massive public outcry. Three unarmed officers gunned down in broad daylight and, quite frankly, should never be released from prison. I mean, a fugitive is always a wanted man and they they very quickly become a sort of folk hero and a folk devil at the same time. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 35 of They Walk Among Us a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Local children on their school holidays were outside playing unsupervised on the nearby football pitches of Wormwood Scrubs on August 12th, 1966. The residents on Braybrook Street in Shepherd's Bush were, for the most part, single-income families. As was common in the 1960s, the husbands in the family worked. 
Some were employed at Wormwood Scrubs Prison, located less than half a mile away. The sound of children laughing and playing filled the air that Friday afternoon, but was suddenly interrupted by gunfire, drawing the attention of panicked locals and youngsters who quickly fell silent. Witnesses later described seeing a vehicle in the area, a blue 1954 Vanguard estate. It was pulled over outside of number 61 Braybrook Street, behind a blue Triumph 2000 saloon. The Vanguard had no rear passenger doors, but through the windows witnesses saw three men occupying the car. There were also three men in the Triumph parked in front of them. It would subsequently be discovered that the Triumph was an unmarked police car, occupied by temporary Detective Constable David Woomwell, Police Constable Geoffrey Fox, and Detective Sergeant Christopher Head. They were plainclothes officers on street patrol duty. PC Fox was in the driver's seat, and DS Head had signalled for the vanguard to pull over. Once the driver complied and stopped, DC Woomwell got out of the back of the Triumph and walked to the driver's side window of the vanguard. After speaking with the driver, DC Woomwell went over to confer with his supervisor DS Head, and they then walked back to the vanguard together. As DS Head began to ask the front and rear passengers to open their doors and show him what was in a bag in the centre console, the front passenger raised a pistol and fired a single shot at DC Woomwell. The bullet went through Woomwell's left eye, causing him to fall back onto the road, a shot that killed him immediately. DS Head panicked and tried to run back to the unmarked police car. Local children later spoke of hearing him cry, No, 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 before the front passenger chased him and shot him in the back. The gunman stood over the wounded officer and tried to shoot him again, but the gun would not fire. The armed assailant shouted to the others in the vanguard and told them, Get the driver! The rear passenger was seen climbing out of the passenger door with a revolver in his hand and firing a number of shots at the windscreen of the Triumph, where PC Fox was desperately trying to drive away. One of the bullets hit the constable in the side of the head, killing him instantly, but his foot was already on the accelerator and the car ran over D.S. Head, who lay bleeding on the ground. The impact caused the car to tilt, which stopped it from driving onward, but the wheels continued to turn against the officer's body. Smoke from the Triumph's wheels filled the air. The gunman quickly returned to the vanguard and sped off. married couple Brian and Patricia Deacon were driving through the area when the vanguard screeched past them. Brian made a note of the license plate and as they turned onto Braybrook Street, 
I saw a crowd start to gather. Patricia later said in her police statement, I saw a man lying in the road with his head nearly in the centre of the road and his feet towards the left curb, and I saw he was bleeding from the face. Further up, about 20 or 30 feet, was a car at an angle to the centre of the road. The back appeared to be up with the wheels spinning and smoke gushing from it. Just beyond the offside rear wheel, I could see the head and shoulders of another man, who appeared to be alive because I saw him move his head. I saw a man standing by this chap, but I don't know who he was. The windscreen of the car was all shattered, and there was a hole about a foot in diameter on the driver's side. Two men rushed to the Triumph to try and help the injured men, but as they looked into the car, it was evident the driver was dead. They switched off the engine and tried to pull DS' head from beneath the vehicle. There was nothing that could be done. By the time the emergency services arrived, all three of the police officers from the unmarked car with the call sign Foxtrot 1-1 were dead. He shot through the window screen and, and, then, he, and then he stuck there. All the men, all the others, got into the van and then drove down Erkenwell Street backwards fast. What kind of gun did these men have, Jim? I don't know. Was it a shotgun or a small gun? Small one. One witness, Catherine Ryan, who lived on Braybrook Street, spoke to the Evening Standard about what she saw. She said, I was in my living room with my neighbour when I heard two shots. I looked out and saw two men on their knees behind a car. At first I thought it was the neighbours falling about, and I saw one of the men fall with blood pouring from his head and I knew it wasn't fooling anymore. A Mrs. Prestage told the paper, I saw lots of people running up the road. Then I saw the most horrible thing I've ever witnessed. Bodies in the road. All lifeless. Another witness, Albert Stiegel, said, I looked out of the window and saw people running. It looked a very one-sided affair to me. The police didn't have much chance in the matter, as far as I could see. Home office pathologist Dr Donald Tear arrived at the scene and confirmed the deaths. DC Woomwell was found lying on his back with his feet towards the curb. The pencil he had been using to write in his notepad was still between his fingers and a pool of blood surrounded the upper part of his body. The bullet had entered just below his left eyelid and exited through the back of his head. PC Fox was found slumped across the passenger seat of the unmarked car. Blood and brain tissue surrounded a wound on the right side of his forehead. He had been shot through the left temple and the bullet had passed through his brain before exiting the right side of his head. 
D.S. Head's body was still under the car. He had been shot in the middle of his back. The bullet had passed through his ribs and left lung. Other injuries were also seen during the post-mortem conducted at Hammersmith Mortuary. D.S. Head had sustained burns from the heat of the exhaust as his body was trapped beneath the car. He also had fractures and lacerations from the tyres as they spun against his legs. Over 50 police officers formed a line to search the area for anything that could assist the inquiry. With three members of the police force murdered in broad daylight, no resources were spared in the hunt for their killers. Soldiers from the army were called in to search the area with mine detectors in an effort to find any weapons or spent bullets that might have been left behind. Witnesses were able to provide the investigators with a good description of both the vanguard and the occupants. Scotland Yard issued descriptions of the wanted men. The first was said to be around 30 years old, between 5 feet 7 and 5 feet 9 inches tall with dark or brown hair, a suntanned oval face, a medium build and was wearing a dark jacket and trousers. The second was aged somewhere between 30 and 35, with longish hair brushed back and a pointed face, nose and chin. The third was described as being in his twenties, with thick wavy hair wearing a light sweater with a red and blue pattern and a bluish-grey jacket. The vehicle used by the suspects was detailed in newspapers as starting its life as a van before windows were added later turning it into an estate type of vehicle. It was a washed-out light blue colour and appeared to be tatty in appearance. The exhaust was broken and rattled as it dragged on the ground while the vehicle was driven. A spokesperson for Scotland Yard said, It is an unusual car. There aren't many like it about. I would think it would stick out like a sore thumb. In 1966, vehicle owner records were kept by local councils, so they were tasked with tracing the owner of the Blue Vanguard with license plate PGT-726. The car was first linked back to a man who had sold it to a mechanic before the vehicle was passed to someone else. That man had moved abroad, but before he left, the car was purchased by a family friend, 36-year-old Jack Whitney. Born John Whitney, he was the only son raised by a single mother in Notting Hill. After his mother's death during his teens, Whitney, who went by the name Jack, lived with different relatives and eventually joined the army albeit briefly. In the 1950s, Whitney was in and out of trouble with the police for petty crimes, but after a shaky start, he settled down with a wife and children. 
he had been working as a lorry driver in 1966. However, when the police arrived at his door on the night of the triple murder, he admitted that he had left his job weeks earlier. Jack Whitney told the police that he had sold the Vanguard earlier that day to a man he'd never met before. Unconvinced by his story, investigators brought Whitney to Shepherd's Bush Police Station for questioning. Whitney stood firm, sticking to his story despite being thoroughly interrogated. It would not be long before detectives located the suspect's vehicle, parked under a railway arch in Lambeth two days after the murders occurred. The owner of the space identified Whitney as the man he rented it to. The vanguard was taken to Hoburn Police Station for a detailed examination. Investigators sought fingerprints, fibres or hairs, anything that would lead to the identity of the killers. At the time, DNA analysis was decades away from being widely used in police investigations. Jack Whitney was charged with the murders on August 15, 1966, and after expressing concerns for his family, he agreed to give the police a statement. He told the investigators that he had not shot any of the police officers, but he had been driving the car. He said the gunmen were acquaintances of his, Harry Roberts and John Duddy. When he said that Roberts had been in the front passenger seat and fired the shot at Detective Constable David Woomwell without warning before getting out of the car and shooting DC Head on the road. It was Duddy who killed PC Jeffrey Fox. In his statement, Whitney recalled what happened after the officers had been shot. Quote, They then raced back to the car and jumped in and said to me, Drive! I said, You must be fucking potty! And Robert said, Drive, cunt, unless you want some of the same. I was petrified with fear and shock but reversed back round the corner and drove away to Vauxhall and put the car in the garage where you found it. When Jack Whitney was brought to court to be charged with the murders, crowds had gathered to jeer and shout. Scotland Yard investigators announced the names of the suspects and asked the public to report any sightings, but warned them not to approach the men under any circumstances. John Duddy was described as being five feet five inches tall with a medium build, fresh complexion, light brown hair, blue eyes and a tattoo on his right forearm of a skull and a heart with the words true to death. He was last seen wearing dark trousers and a patterned sweater. Harry Roberts was described as being five feet ten inches with brown hair blue eyes and small scars near his left eye. He was last seen wearing a grey suit, white shirt, dark tie and brown suede boots. 
by the time the police arrived at Robert's and Duddy's last known address, the suspects had disappeared. John Duddy had left his teenage daughters alone in the house and not told them where he was going. Their mother had left some weeks prior, taking the two youngest children with her. Thirty-seven-year-old John Duddy was a Glasgow native and the son of a police officer born into a large Catholic family. Along with his wife and four children, Duddy moved around while in the armed forces, from London to Malaya, then to Glasgow and back to London. After serving in the army, he worked low-paid jobs in construction and for a time he was employed as a lorry driver, before an accident left him hospitalised in the summer of 1966. In his teens and twenties, Duddy had a few run-ins with the law for petty theft and break-ins, but he had not been arrested for almost two decades by the time the police were searching for him in 1966. The police in Glasgow began looking for Duddy, and through speaking with relatives they learned that he was in the city. Officers were then led to where Duddy was hiding on August 17th. After his arrest, Duddy told the investigators, It was Roberts who started the shooting. He shot the two who got out of the police car and shouted to me to shoot. I just grabbed a gun and ran to the police car and shot the driver through the window. I must have been mad. I wish you could hang me now. I didn't mean to kill him. I wanted quick money the easy way. I'm a fool. John Duddy was flown back to London and charged with three counts of murder but Harry Roberts was still missing and the public outcry was reaching fever pitch. Within days of the murders, there was a nationwide call for capital punishment to be brought back to deal with the killers. MP Duncan Sandys said in a statement, the callous murder of three policemen has shocked the whole nation but it is not enough to be shocked. If we wish these brave men to risk their lives to protect us, we in turn must give them the maximum protection which the law can provide. As soon as Parliament reassembles, I intend to demand the restoration of hanging for the killing of policemen and jailers and those who go to their assistance. Frank Small, the head of the Nottinghamshire Police Committee, echoed those sentiments and stated, The crass folly of removing the death penalty for shooting a policeman has been shown up pretty clearly in the last 24 hours. The death penalty was suspended in the UK in 1965, meaning that the crime came just over a year late for the hangman's noose. The Home Secretary Roy Jenkins travelled to Shepherd's Bush to assess the progress on the investigation as crowds of hundreds of people gathered and chanted, Bring Back Hanging. 
I can well understand the reaction and feelings of policemen at the present time, but it would be quite wrong for me to take a major policy decision in the shadow of one event, however horrible that may be. A petition was soon signed by thousands calling for the restoration of capital punishment. Another MP, William Van Strabenzi, issued a statement lambasting the abolition of executions. He remarked, It is absolutely monstrous for theorists in the House of Commons to tamper with the lives of young men to whom we entrust the maintenance of law and order in a country which is being rapidly overtaken by gangsters. The real murderers of the three young men sit on the benches of the House of Commons. Even a local vicar was conflicted over his own views on the death penalty after consoling one of the victim's wives. Father Platt from St Catherine's Church in Westway told the Shepherd's Bush Gazette, I am appalled at the completely callous way these unarmed men were shot. One was even shot in the back. I'm normally against capital punishment, but it does raise doubts in my mind that this crime could change the law. I would be very sympathetic to anyone who wanted to change the law. After all, these men risk their lives supporting us. The mayor of Hammersmith, Len Freeman, launched a national fund for the widows and family members of the three murdered policemen. Mayor Freeman told the Evening Standard, I am ashamed and disgusted at the men who did this. It is an insult to British manhood. Donations soon exceeded £100,000 for the dependence of the police officers killed while on duty. The victims were named publicly once their family members had been informed. 25-year-old David Wombwell was a temporary detective constable, married with two young children under the age of three. He had been in the force just over three years. Constable Geoffrey Fox was a 41-year-old married father of three who had received three commendations during his 16 years in the force. PC Fox's brother Lester spoke with the Shepherd's Bush Gazette and said that Fox lived for his family and the police force. His mother had been hospitalised after hearing of the murder and his children took the news badly. P.C. Fox's eldest daughter, 18-year-old Anne, spoke about her father when reporters called at the family home three days after the shooting. She said, I am certain if Dad had had a say, he would have wanted to go this way. He was a man devoted to his work and someone who also disliked the idea of growing old. He was so popular with children and adults. We have been told that hardened criminals even called at Shepherd's Bush to say they were not connected with the shootings in any way. Detective Sergeant Christopher Head was an unmarried 30-year-old who had joined the force in 1958 
and received two commendations since that time. With Jack Whitney and John Duddy in custody, the search for Harry Roberts was well underway. He was known to use two aliases, Ronald Hall and John O'Brien. Teams of officers from Scotland Yard were tasked with watching the ports and airports while door-to-door inquiries were undertaken throughout London. Now, at what stage did he begin to get interested in guns? Well, he started to talk, uh, when the three of them met, they'd done a couple of small jobs and they started to talk big and he wanted to hide behind a symbol and the only thing he knew was like a gun. Would you say that Roberts was a successful criminal? No, definitely not. Do you know at all how much money he would have made out of his crimes in London? Ooh, I should imagine about £300. That's about his top weight between the three of them. Would you regard him as a strong arm boy, tough boy? No. Why not? Well, any man who hides behind a gun, he's not a strong arm man, he's not a tough man. And a good criminal wouldn't go and use a gun for start off. Harry Roberts was born in Essex on July 21st, 1936, an only child of hotel managers Harry Senior and Dorothy. Like most of the capital's children of his generation, Roberts was evacuated during the Second World War and spent time living in rural South Wales. His parents split up during the conflict and he was raised by his mother once he returned home. Most of Robert's education was obtained at a religious boarding school and the term was over he worked with his mother in a cafe she operated. There, Roberts helped sell black market and rationed items to supplement the family's income in the post-war recession. Did he have a happy childhood? As far as I know, he never wanted for anything. We never associated locally a lot. Why was that? Well, because he was a boarding school boy. But do you think that this absence from his parents and this absence of the home influence had any effect on him? Oh, dear, no. Not at all. No, I don't think so. I think he was work shy. He didn't want to go to work. And he mixed in the wrong company. I will stand by my son as long as I live. As a teenager, Roberts began getting into trouble with the police. He had been expelled from two schools and started stealing and selling items. Shortly after he turned 18, he was convicted of assault after beating a shopkeeper with a blunt instrument. He spent almost two years in a borstal, and following his release, he was enlisted in the armed forces. Roberts spent the next couple of years as a marksman in Malaya and Kenya, and when he was discharged in 1958, he moved back to North London. It was there he met his first wife, Margaret. The relationship moved quickly, and within a year they were married with a baby on the way. 
unbeknownst to Margaret. Roberts had left honest work behind and returned to a life of crime. He grew violent, and Margaret reported Roberts to the police, telling them she suspected her husband was responsible for an almost fatal robbery and attack of an elderly man months prior. Roberts was ultimately convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. Sadly, Margaret lost the baby soon after, and their relationship ended. He blamed you for his arrest, did he? He couldn't forgive me, and especially when the sentence came up, seven years, he'd never forgive me. Did he threaten you at all then? Yes, he did actually. Probably in haste, I don't know. He said that um, if ever he had a spare bullet left, he'd use it on me. Roberts adjusted well to prison life and earned himself a good reputation. He was released early for good behaviour. In 1963, Roberts was transferred to a rehabilitation hostel and permitted to work as a bricklayer. While on work release, he met divorcee Lillian Perry. They struck up a friendship of sorts, and when Robert's sentence was finished, he moved into a spare room in Lillian's home in Bristol. Neighbours remembered him as being friendly, generous and hard-working. He soon established his own bricklaying business and employed locals. A foreman, Norman Perry, described Roberts as a gentleman in an interview with the Evening Post. He said, It's very rarely you find a bricklayer or any other building worker who doesn't use a spot of bad language now and then. But to my knowledge, Roberts was the exception. I never heard him swear. He didn't smoke and he always sounded polite. I was astonished when I heard the police wanted him for the Shepherd's Bush murder. Roberts and Lillian left Bristol for London less than two months before the killings and moved in with friends of theirs, the Howards, in Paddington. When the police caught up with Lillian, she informed them that she had been told about the murders by Roberts and she had been privy to their plans. After they moved to London, Harry Roberts told his parents he was fed up with making an honest living. He spent a lot of time with his friends Whitney and Duddy drinking in a local pub, and nine months before the murders, Roberts purchased three guns. Lillian accompanied him to a London cafe where he bought an Army Issue 38 pistol, a 38 Colt and a Luger, as well as ammunition for the guns. He just said he was fed up with work. He said he'd had enough. He said, I'm fed up with work. There's no prospects in it. And uh, he had no more interest in it. Did he strike you as having any particular interest in guns? I think he felt he liked to own some. Of course he had them quite some time, as you know, um, before this happened. It, um, it was just a thing, like boys like cars. Was he very frightened of being arrested? Yes. He did say he never ever wanted to go inside again. 
Is that all he said about it? Well, he did say he'd put up a fight if he had to. On the evening of Friday, August 12th, 1966, Roberts had returned to the flat where he and Lillian had been living and she told him about a news report on the shooting of three police officers. When she asked him if he had heard about it, Roberts replied, It was us. The police car came up and wanted to search our car. They would have found the guns in there, and I would have done time for nothing, because we're not out to do anything. We're only looking for a car or cars. The following morning, Duddy came over to the flat and Lillian overheard them discussing what had happened. Robert said, Oh God, what a hell of a mess we have made of things. Duddy replied that he wished it had never happened and Robert said that they should have burned the car and needed to get rid of the guns. Duddy brought the weapons over the next morning. Lillian told the police, He said he had slept with them, two at his feet and one under his pillow. Roberts and Duddy then left the house with the guns concealed in their trouser belts. They returned that evening. Lillian asked Roberts what they had done with the weapons, and he said they had buried them somewhere. Roberts then gave Duddy ten pounds to help him flee to Glasgow. After Duddy left, Roberts and Lillian travelled to Euston Station so Roberts could leave a suitcase in the left luggage area. It was later recovered by police and contained a suit much like the one Roberts was seen wearing during the shooting. Afterwards, Lillian and Roberts travelled into the city and stayed in a hotel. Roberts purchased camping equipment and they boarded a Green Line bus. Roberts got out near Epping Forest and told Lillian, This is as far as we go together. I am on my own now. Lillian made her way back to London, and by the time she arrived, the police were already searching for her partner. Although Lillian Perry's initial statements were not forthcoming, She explained that she had been too afraid to tell the truth in case Roberts came back and killed her. With Harry Roberts' last known location being on the outskirts of the 6,000-acre Epping Forest close to where he grew up, hundreds of police officers began scouring the woodland for signs of the fugitive. Roberts had served in the army, and had experience camping in the jungles of Malaya, so the police knew it would be no easy feat to find him. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Centair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Centair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Centair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Centair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to Centair.com and using promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at Centair.com. As the hunt for Harry Roberts continued, John Duddy and Jack Whitney were held on a number of charges. They were each facing three counts of murder, three counts of harbouring and assisting a criminal, and three counts of possessing a firearm with intent. They both entered pleas of not guilty, and when the preliminary hearings began, witnesses including a 10-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl described the horrific shootings in detail. It was raining heavily on Thursday, September 1st, 1966. The weather seemed fitting, as thousands of people lined Uxbridge Road to pay their respects. 
A funeral service for David Woonwell, Christopher Head and Geoffrey Fox was held in St. Stephen's Church, across from Shepherd's Bush Police Station where the fallen officers had worked. The 15 hearses containing the victims' caskets and loved ones were escorted to the church. Hundreds of uniformed officers formed a guard of honour as the caskets were carried into the church by 18 detective pallbearers. The Bishop of Kensington delivered the service and told mourners, Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friends. One large wreath had been left with a card expressing deepest sympathy. It was signed by Harry Roberts' estranged wife, Margaret. In an appeal to Harry Roberts, his mother gave a televised statement, begging her son to give himself up before there was more bloodshed. Dorothy Roberts collapsed during the plea because she was so upset. However, she still reiterated her appeal to reporters. Roberts' former partner Margaret also asked her estranged husband to turn himself in. Hundreds of calls reporting sightings of Roberts came into police stations across the nation, and although each tip was followed up, None of the information led to the wanted man. 700 police officers had scoured Epping Forest without any trace of Roberts, so the trial proceedings began in his absence. Harry Roberts was named on the charges alongside John Duddy and Jack Whitney when the trial began in court number one at the Old Bailey on November 14th. Hundreds of people had gathered to witness the start of the legal proceedings. However, shortly after the court was in session, lead investigator Detective Sergeant Richard Chitty received a call to tell him that Robert's tent had been found near Bishop Stortford in Hertfordshire Wood. A camp was found 20 yards from the edge of Thorley Wood. A five-feet tent was hidden by vegetation and a sheet painted green and brown to camouflage it. Among the items found in the camp were a paraffin stove, a cupboard for storing tin food, newspapers dating between October and November, and cooking equipment. Reporters called the hideout an ingenious construction. Roberts had set up strings attached to the tent to alert him if anyone approached from any direction. The tent had been discovered by a local man who in turn reported it to the police. The following morning, officers from Stevenage were directed to go to Bishop Stortford to assist in a large-scale search for Harry Roberts. Sergeant Peter Smith was among the search party, and soon after 11am, he noticed a Dutch barn containing straw bales and decided to look through it. The barn was around three quarters of a mile from the abandoned camp, and as Sergeant Smith tossed the straw bales, 
he saw a gun. Sergeant Smith later recalled, I pulled another bale of straw down, which revealed a sleeping bag laying full length between the trusses of straw. It appeared to me that the sleeping bag was empty, so I prodded it with my hand. As I did so, a man's head appeared from the end of the sleeping bag. Although unshaven and dishevelled, I immediately recognised the man as Roberts, wanted at Shepherd's Bush for the murder of three policemen. Harry Roberts was immediately cautioned and told he was under arrest. He replied, You will not get any trouble from me. I have had enough. I'm glad you caught me. He was clearly tired and malnourished. Three months' growth of a ginger beard did little to change his distinctive features that were on the cover of every newspaper for weeks. Roberts was taken to speak with Detective Superintendent Richard Chitty and readily confessed. Roberts said, I will tell you the truth. I shot the two policemen on that Friday afternoon. It was Duddy who shot the driver. I don't know what we were doing by the scrubs. We were going to nick a car, but not on that particular day. We had the plates in Whitney's van. We were going to rob a rent collector. The police car pulled up by us. The officer came back. I thought they were going to find the guns in the van. So I shot the officer who was talking to Whitney and then shot at the one talking to Duddy. I got out of the car. The officer ran towards the police car and I shot him. Duddy got out of the car and went to the police car and shot the driver. We then got back into the car and Whitney drove back to the arches at Vauxhall. We had at first decided to abandon the car but then decided to take it back to the arches. We were going to burn it. Robert said that he and John Duddy had buried the guns in Hampstead Heath but he returned and dug them up three weeks later while on the run. He agreed to show the police where and explained that the Luger was the gun that had been found with him. The others were in the straw bales in the barn. Roberts went on to describe how he had fled London and lived rough to evade arrest, telling investigators, After Whitney had been arrested and the car had been found, I went with Lily and left the clothes I was wearing at the left luggage office at Euston. Bought some camping equipment and went by bus to Epping Forest. I left her there and she went back to June Howard's place. I walked out to Thorley Woods where I have been ever since. The reason I was not in the tent when you went there was because on the Thursday night I'd gone out screwing was followed back to the woods by a policeman with a dog. So I went back to the barn where I was caught. On November 16th, Harry Roberts was brought to court 
where he was charged with three counts of murder, among other charges. Harry Roberts, John Duddy and Jack Whitney were tried together at the Old Bailey. Proceedings began on December 6, 1966. It emerged that the trio had gone out intending to steal a vehicle to be used in a robbery and they were pulled over by officers in Shepherd's Bush. Roberts pleaded guilty to two of the murders, but the plea was not accepted by the Crown Prosecutor and Solicitor General Sir Dingle Foote. He told the jury that the three men had gone out with a common purpose, to commit a crime, so they were equally guilty of murder. Jack Whitney was the only defendant to take the stand. He claimed that he had no idea there were guns in the van that day. Whitney admitted that he had ordered duplicate license plates for a car he planned to steal, but insisted he had not intended to do it with Duddy and Roberts. Whitney testified he would not have used a firearm to steal a car, because the sentence of car theft was only six months in prison anyway. The defendant then recalled the shooting. I had gone approximately 20 or 25 yards when the police car drew up alongside. I was driving. Roberts was next to me and Duddy was in the back. The bag containing the guns had been put between the front and rear seats. As the police car pulled up alongside, Sergeant Head flagged his hand. I stopped and parked close to the curb. Sergeant Head and Detective Woomwell got out and came towards my window. Sergeant Head asked me for my road fund licence, and I explained that I didn't have one. He asked me why, and I said I could not get it taxed until I got an MOT certificate. Then he asked for my licence, and I produced it. Finally, he asked for my insurance certificate, and on reading it, he remarked, It is three hours out of date. Wimwell started to write down my name and address, and I said to him, Can't you give me a break? I was nicked for this a fortnight ago. And then a shot came. I heard no conversation between the officer and Roberts. The shot came from my left, but I didn't see the impact of the bullet. Woomwell had disappeared, and Roberts jumped out of the car. I don't know whether he had fired the shot out of the window or not. I was pretty shaken. I opened my door and saw Woomwell lying in the road. By the time I had realised what had happened, Roberts was going up the road after Sergeant Head. I heard the pistol being fired, and I saw the officer fall to the ground. Duddy got out almost immediately with Roberts. Duddy ran alongside the near side of the police car and fired through the window. Jack Whitney told the court that he had been threatened to remain silent afterwards. Quote, Before going home that night, Robert said to me, 
you wouldn't grass on us, would you? I replied, no. Roberts then said, don't make any mistakes. You know what happened to Jack Spot and his wife? That was minor in comparison. I presumed he meant compared with what would happen to me. I was petrified with fear for my wife and two daughters. I had just seen Duddy and Roberts kill three policemen, and as far as I was concerned, I was under no illusions. After Whitney had portrayed himself as someone who was caught up in the shooting, the counsel for his co-defendant showed another side to him. They revealed that Whitney had spoken to a detective after his arrest and said, How are the wives of the policemen who got killed? I cannot bear to think about the kids they had. Roberts and Duddy must have been mad. A week later, Duddy had spoken to the same detective and said, You've got the impression that Whitney was forced to drive back after the shooting. You can take it from me that Whitney was the brains of this outfit. Prosecution witnesses corroborated the contention that Jack Whitney had planned the entire thing. One recalled Whitney saying, Life is my freedom, and if necessary, I would kill to keep my freedom. While Whitney and Duddy had pleaded not guilty to all of the charges, Harry Roberts was willing to accept most of the blame for the murders. His solicitor said that Roberts would gladly face charges alone for two counts of murder, so it would not make things more difficult for Whitney and Duddy. Roberts admitted that he had fired the first shot, but insisted that he had never threatened Whitney. On December 12th, after 30 minutes of deliberations, the jury returned with their verdicts. They found all three men guilty of three counts of murder. presiding judge Mr Justice Glyn Jones addressed the killers and said you have been justly convicted of what is perhaps the most heinous crime to have been committed in this country for a generation or more I think it likely that no home secretary in the future regarding the enormity of your crime will ever think it fit to show mercy by releasing you on license This is one of those cases where sentence of imprisonment for life may well be treated as meaning exactly what it says. At least any Home Secretary in the future be minded to consider your release on licence. I have to make a recommendation. My recommendation is that you should not be released until after a period of 30 years has gone by from today's date. Speaking after the sentence was handed down, Robert's closest companion, Lillian Perry, said, I am shattered. I cannot believe that the Robbie I know could have done these things. 
He's so kind and meek at home. I don't know what I'll do now. The first thing is to visit him. To comfort him. Robert's mother Dorothy also spoke to journalists and expressed her heartache at her son's fate. She said, The result was inevitable. I feared he would end up like this years ago. He kept terrible company, and although I tried to talk to him, he took no notice. I have seen my son several times since he was arrested, and he was absolutely resigned to this sentence. I think things really went wrong when he met Whitney in Maidstone Prison. Whitney may not have shot anyone, but he was the brains of the Enterprise. Since his capture, I've been some comfort to him by standing by. After all, a mother must do that. Mrs. Roberts was not the only parent devastated by their son's life sentence. John Duddy's 74-year-old father, Bernard, had collapsed an hour after the sentence was passed and fractured his skull. He died five days later as a result. So where are we now? Mrs. Roberts' dedication to her only child became a concern in 1973 when she was arrested and accused of smuggling a pair of seven-inch bolt cutters into Parkhurst Prison with the intent to facilitate her son's escape. On November 30th of the previous year, 73-year-old Dorothy had been to visit her son. Shortly after she left, bolt cutters were found in a washroom next to the visiting area. A search was conducted in Robert's cell the following morning and concealed inside a hole behind the bed, prison officers found a, quote, veritable arsenal of escape equipment. The hole in the wall was estimated to be three or four months' worth of digging, and the prosecution alleged that it was part of a tunnel Roberts had been constructing to escape. Dorothy's counsel asked the jury at her trial, did she really take a seven or eight minute walk from the main gate to the security block with this equipment in her corset and sit from 1.15pm to 3pm with it stuffed up her jumper or concealed in her underwear? The defence argued that Roberts did not need any help from his mother if he wanted to escape, because as a trusted prisoner, he had access to woodwork and model-making tools found concealed in his cell. Harry Roberts was moved to Leicester Prison after the discovery. The prosecution said that Dorothy had been visiting her son for six years, and knew every detail of procedure and routine in the prison. They alleged that her age played a factor in her supposed actions. The prosecutor Victor Watt said, 
One could imagine her feelings that unless he could get out, she would be lucky to see him out in her lifetime. The defence countered by saying that up to 20 other prisoners and visitors had access to the washroom that day, including prisoners who had been caught planning an escape. On March 30th, 1973, a jury of ten women and two men returned after just over five hours of deliberations. As they read the verdict, Robert's elderly mother almost collapsed. She was found not guilty. After she was free to leave the court... Dorothy told reporters from The Guardian, I shall be sending a telegraph to Harry to tell him I am all right. He will have a laugh, because he knows the police have tried to make a scapegoat out of me and failed. Despite the sentencing judge's remarks in 1966 that it was unlikely that any home secretary would free the convicted police killers, Jack Whitney was released from prison on license in 1991. John Duddy had died behind bars in 1981, but Whitney had been allowed out aged 61. Whitney had served 19 years in prison for his role in the triple murders, and he moved into ex-prisoner accommodation in Bristol. On August 15, 1999, Whitney was beaten to death by a flatmate Nigel Evans, a drug addict desperate for money. Evans received a life sentence and some members of the public felt that Whitney received the ultimate justice. Harry Roberts was released from Little Hay Prison in November 2014, after serving 45 years behind bars. He appears in tabloid newspapers from time to time, whenever he is seen in public. Harry Roberts' crimes appalled a nation. Half a century on, his freedom appalls many who believe that life really should mean life. They would have looked at reports from psychologists, from probation officers, from the chaplain if necessary, from the prison governor, about whether he had shown remorse, come to terms with the gravity of what he'd done, had attended all the right offender programmes, and was genuinely, in the opinion of the parole board, fit to be released because he wasn't a danger to the public. Should Harry Roberts be allowed out? My honest opinion, no. He should stay where he is. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to our Patreon supporters. more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.